It's Friday, the 19th of January, so happy first day of Sound Splash to those attending the Raglan Music Festival. Kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. We speak to an aid worker on the ground inside Gaza about the conditions Palestinians and humanitarian workers are facing. Thousands are expected to attend tomorrow's hui, called by the Kingitanga, what it's hoped the meeting will achieve. There's an olive oil crisis going on in Europe and prices could skyrocket here and the hot cross bun flavour that appears to be dividing our friends across the ditch. I believe that was an accidental pun across hot cross bun. Anyway, we've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. It's more than a hundred days since the Hamas invasion into Israel that sparked devastating conflict in Gaza, but there is no end to the fighting in sight. Israeli hostages are still being held, and thousands upon thousands of Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. UNICEF is working to try to help the many being affected by the airstrikes, and fears are growing that many could now die from the effects of the humanitarian disaster that's hitting the population, malnutrition, respiratory and gastro illnesses, and the cold. To speak about this more, we're joined from inside Gaza by Tess Ingram, UNICEF's global spokesperson. Tess, thank you very much for being here. Hi. Tess, we've heard for so long about how these things are at breaking point. Has anything improved when it comes to the help you can offer? I think the help that we can offer remains the same, but our capacity to deliver enough help hasn't changed. And and that's because it's being restricted at the border and being restricted in terms of how easy it is for us to distribute things across the Gaza Strip. So as an example, before the escalation in hostilities, 500 trucks a day used to come into the Gaza Strip. And right now it's averaging about 150, maybe 200 on a good day. So far too little considering that the needs have escalated so much since then. How long have you been inside Gaza and what are you seeing every day while you've been there? Oh, it's it's unreal. I've been here for a week now. And um, I think, you know, what you see on the news um, doesn't even do it justice. And that is because... Every person has their own story and every story has shocked me in terms of how terrible it is. I was on my second day in Gaza and I went to an informal displacement site where people are living. Now, there's a designated shelter in the middle of that where about 3,000 people are seeking shelter, but there's far more people needing shelter than that. So there's about 30,000 people around this designated shelter. And I met a 13-year-old girl there called Mace. Now, Mace is from the north of Gaza, and she was coming back to the house where she and her family were seeking shelter. They'd already been displaced once. They'd come to this house because they thought it was a bit safer than where they were living by the beach. And she was coming back to the house, hanging her backpack up on the hook at the door, and she could hear her sisters inside laughing. And then, bang, the next thing she remembers, she wakes up, and, and she's in our Shifa hospital, which is the biggest hospital in the north of Gaza. And she's covered in third-degree burns. She's got nerve damage to her face, so half of her face is paralysed, affecting her speech. She had tremendous breaks in her leg, which required surgery. And she asked what had happened, and she'd been buried underneath the rubble and and rescued and and brought to the hospital. 
and she asked about her sisters, the ones she remembered laughing inside, and, and both of them hadn't made it. Um, when I met Mace, it was in Carnunas, and she was in a in a tent, and I said to her, what are the conditions like in this tent? It looks really difficult. Have you got food or water? And she said, no, we don't have anything. And I said, oh, well, how do you feel about living here? And May said, I would prefer to be living here than being back inside a building made of, of bricks or, or concrete because I'm terrified that that will fall down on me again and kill me. So that's just one of, of thousands of stories. This is children that we're talking about. So it's really devastating, the conditions that these people are living through. And there's about a million and a half people now in Rafa, where I am in the south of the Gaza Strip, and they've all been displaced from the middle of the north areas of Gaza. And they're living in, in really makeshift shelters, so bits of tarpaulin strung together by rope or, or blankets, bed linen hanging up off the side of a, a building. And it's really cold here in Gaza at the moment. It's the coldest month of, of the year in, in the region, and it's wet. It's been raining all week. So you can imagine living on the streets in those sorts of circumstances, plus knowing that there's these bombardments over the top of your head. So for a child, they're cold and they're wet and they're hungry and it smells because the sanitation systems aren't working and it's scary because there's there's bombs going off all the time. Apart from an end to fighting, an end to this bombing, what things could change that would make sure enough supplies are getting in and make your job a bit easier? So basically... We need an end to the fighting. That is the number one ask. In lieu of that, in the meantime, there are things that can change. So we need more aid to get across the two crossing points that are open. More crossing points opening would be even better. So open all the crossing points that exist and try and get as much aid in as possible because we're talking about a humanitarian catastrophe here and we need to really respond with the same magnitude as the problem. And the reason why this is important is because children are now at risk of dying from the humanitarian crisis as well as from the bombs and the bullets. And those deaths are entirely preventable. Those deaths we can actually do something about if aid agencies like UNICEF are allowed to do their job properly. Tess Ingram, UNICEF's global spokesperson, thank you for taking the time uh, out of your busy, busy life right now to explain all of that to us. My pleasure. This morning, Newsable can reveal the government approved and then scrapped sending a New Zealand plane to get Kiwis out of war-torn Middle East once the fighting broke out. Stuff Audio's senior journalist Aaron Darman has been working on the story and joins us now. Aaron, why did the government want to send a Defence Force plane in the first place? Well, as the war escalated, there were a lot of unknowns, one of which was how people caught up in the crossfire would get out. And while officials began working with Etihad Airways to fly New Zealanders from Israel to Abu Dhabi, that's the capital of the United Arab Emirates, there was a bigger problem brewing. With a potential lack of onward flights running, would they be stranded? So, on election day, October 14, officials delivered a proposal to the Beehive. Send a Defence Force plane to repatriate people out of Abu Dhabi and be available just in case New Zealanders had to be evacuated straight out of Tel Aviv. And as the Blue Party balloons rained down for National's new Prime Minister Christopher Luxon that election night, whose office was kept in the loop, then Defence Minister Andrew Little gave the green light. But four days later, officials told ministers that there was no consulate requirement to send the plane, citing an easing of demand and commercial routes departing Tel Aviv remaining open. Would it have been a big deal for New Zealand to send its own plane in this situation? Yes, 
Absolutely. We'd only really send a repatriation flight somewhere if Kiwis had absolutely no other way of getting out. You might remember Wuhan in China early 2020 when the government chartered an Air New Zealand flight to pull people out of the city due to COVID-19. That shows how rarely this lever is pulled and how dire officials believe the situation on the ground could get for New Zealanders. The price tag would also have been significant. The Defence Force Boeing 757 was offered up and the cost was estimated to sit between $850,000 and $1.02 million. For a period of time, the plane did remain on standby, but I've been told that this is no longer the case. So how many New Zealanders have made it back home so far? I've been in touch with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which says it's assisted the departures of 75 New Zealand citizens, permanent residents and family members, including 26 from Gaza, 40 from Israel and 9 from the West Bank. A spokesperson also told me no New Zealand citizens or permanent residents are currently seeking MFAT assistance to leave the region, although help is being provided in Gaza to a very small number of New Zealand visa holders with immediate family connections in New Zealand. Thanks for that, Aaron. Now, we have not forgotten the potential olive oil crisis that could be looming. We will still talk about it. I do promise we'll get there in a moment. But if you want to keep right on top of all the news, remember to find us on TikTok or Instagram. Search NZ Stuff. And also, if you ever wanted to get in touch, you can always flick us an email, newsable at stuff.co.nz. Tomorrow, thousands are expected to arrive at Tūranga Waiwai Marae in the Waikato town of Narua Wahia for a hui to discuss concerns over how government policies could affect Māori. But what does this meeting called by Kingi Tuhetia hope to achieve and how representative will it be? To tell us more, we're joined by the Kingitanga's Chief of Staff, Archdeacon Nira Simmons. Kia ora. Kia everybody. Nira, how many are you actually expecting to attend and how representative of iwi across the motu is the gathering likely to be? The honest truth is we're not entirely certain how many are coming. Mm. When we first put the call out, the king issued Te Paki o Matariki, we guessed around 2,000. My hunch now is we'll probably see more than 5,000. In terms of iwi representation, we have heard from iwi all over the country, from the very far north, Te Rarawa, Te Aupauri, Ngāpuhi, right through down the east coast, the South Island, the west coast, uh, the Wellington area, even Great Barrier Island. We have even heard of some Māori returning home from Australia. So I think pretty much everybody. When you say you're prepared for around 5,000, what do you mean by that? Uh, the number of lunch boxes that yeah, are being seen everybody, that. <laughs> uh, and the number of chairs that we're putting out to seat people. Um, how the how the is going to run is we're, we're hoping to get to the breakout sessions as quickly as possible because that will increase the participation for the hui. So, in an interview with Newsable. Act Party leader David Seymour implied this gathering represented a minority, that it wouldn't reflect the majority of what Māori think. What's your response to that? Um, I, I wouldn't think that that would be accurate. Uh, I, I think this we will represent the majority uh, of Māoridom. And I think uh, that because... My experience and those of us who live and breathe and work in these circles day in and day out know and understand how it works. 
Uh, and I would respectfully um, disagree with uh, Mr. Seymour on that fact. Uh, and what, what we're looking for, though, isn't a, a game of politics or a game of numbers. This is about mana motuhake, which resides and dwells within hapu, within iwi, within marae kainga across the country. And it takes a different form. And in order to really understand what that's about, you have to dwell with it for some time. What are you hoping will come out of this hui? Kotaitanga is really easy. Unity is really easy to espouse. It's quite difficult to achieve. So what we are really hoping for is a level of kotahitanga that we haven't seen and experienced in some time. And we're really hoping that that kotahitanga will be focused on our hopes and dreams for the future. And, and that forms the, the most significant part of the kutahitanga. We don't really want to be in a space where we are just in a transaction of response to what the government's doing, because that can make us quite tired quite quick. Actually, let's just set our own agenda and then pursue that path and where we find alignment with others, we'll work together and where we don't, we'll carry on and do the things that we want to do ourselves. Kingitanga's Chief of Staff, Archdeacon Nira Simmons. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. The dubious flavoured hocross buns that might be gracing the shelves in Australia this Easter are still to come. I'll be interested to see what you all think about this one. But hey, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform to make sure you never miss an episode. Here's some unwelcome news. There's an olive oil crisis going on in Europe. Extreme weather conditions over the last 10 years or so, like droughts, severe hailstorms and flooding, have meant olive groves are not at their biggest and brightest. With the BBC reporting one grower in Spain says they had less than 45% yield last year. And alongside poor harvests come price increases, which have been felt extremely hard overseas. But what about here? So to find out more, Gino Corcarulo from Wellington's Mediterranean Foods is here to tell us more. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Gino, what sort of impact has this shortage overseas meant for us here? Have you struggled at all to get European olive oil into the country? Well, luckily for us, because we have our finger on the pulse with what's happening, we've kind of got forewarning that there's going to be price increases. So we entered into contracts 18 months ago to get us through for the next 18 months. And those contracts are now expiring, and that stock's coming to an end. But during that period, we had increases twice, and we had about a 30% increase. So the next contract that we've entered into that's leaving Europe in the next week or two, that'll mean that overall, over the last year, our price would have increased around the 50 to 60% mark, which is a big number, of course. But luckily, we've we've absorbed it a little, little bit by entering into these forward contracts. And have those contracts been easy to secure, or has that been a scramble as well, given the limited stock? Look, I think if you're a new player and you're coming on the scene wanting to buy olive oil, it'll be very difficult. But when you've got 20 or 30 years of history of buying every year, no, there's no problem. So are customers paying 50% more? Or when you said you've absorbed some of that cost, you're not passing all of that on to customers, which you would have no choice to given the price increases, of course. No, no, definitely the market's paid more for it. And as that's increased over those last two increases, those increases have followed through to the market. And there's some reluctance, but olive oil sales for us are still very strong. 
I mean, you can't imagine having a caprese salad with canola oil, can you? It just wouldn't be right, would it? I mean, you can imagine it, Gino, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to imagine it. <laughs> My father would turn in his grave. Do you stock any New Zealand olive oil? I know we don't because our, you know, our sole business model is imports. So all of our oil is from Italy. But I suppose it wouldn't be a bad time then to be a New Zealand olive oil producer, possibly. I would say so. But generally speaking, um, New Zealand olive oil hasn't been very competitive in the market. And possibly now they might be more competitive, but we certainly haven't come across any uh, New Zealand competition at the um, high high volume end, so at the, you know, the restaurants or hotels, that sort of thing. Have you heard any rumblings or any indications as to whether or not things are getting better or maybe worse over in Europe? No, definitely getting worse. Um, I think that the midterm forecast is that extra virgin olive oil will become less of a commodity and more of a high-end ingredient. Mamma mia. As they say, Gino Kokorilov from Wellington's Mediterranean Foods, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we go, I have to tell you what the Aussies are up to. And I suppose it's our fault. This is what happens when we don't check in on them too often. Coles, the supermarket chain across the ditch, has paired up with Arnott's, the bicky-making brand, for a hot cross bun collab, it's alleged at this stage that there will be two flavours, a savoury hot crossy and a sweet hot crossy. And you want to know what everyone's saying the savoury one will be? Apparently it was leaked. An Aussie food influencer took to the gram to reveal all. Pizza shape flavour. I'm talking shapes, the cracker, the pizza flavoured ones, has a hot cross bun. First of all, cheese and bacon or chicken crumpy are the superior shapes, flavours. So how they settled on pizza, if that is in fact what they'll be making, is beyond me. How did they get to that point? But second of all, is that not just a bread roll with a cross on it? A pizza shapes flavoured hot cross bun, to me, is just a bread roll. Very confused. Newsable did request comment from Coles to confirm these details. They did not respond to our emails, but in a statement provided to news.com.au, the supermarket chain did not confirm or deny that pizza-shaped flavoured hot crossies are on the cards, nor would they reveal the sweet option, which punters reckon could be Tim Tam. I would get behind a Tim Tam hot cross bun. Coles did say in that statement to news.com.au, though, that we will all just have to wait a little bit longer to find out what they are. Do I want to know what they are is the question. You already know I want to know your thoughts on all this. Would you eat a pizza shapes flavoured hot cross bun? Yeah, nah. 
it's just not a hot cross bun to me. I'd still eat it, obviously, but it is a bread roll. Anyway, head to the South Instagram page, get your votes in. I'm just as confused as you are about all of this. Hey, happy Friday, everyone. That's Newsable. For today, I'm Imogen Wells. I'll speak to you soon. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz slash support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.